Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Malbethanchel. Today we talk about a fantasy trilogy and hear from the woman who wrote it. Rebecca Kwong is an incoming PhD student at Yale who first started writing The Poppy War when she was just 19. It was nominated for a 2018 Nebula Award for Best Novel, an award voted on by some of the leading writers of science fiction and fantasy in America. In The Poppy War, readers are introduced to a girl named Rin, a war orphan, who passes a rigorous test that allows her to study with the most talented youth at the Empire's top military academy. But her journey is not easy. She's ostracized for being a dark-skinned peasant girl among elites. She goes on to fight in a brutal war and discovers she has a lethal, unearthly power. Rin's journey continues in the Dragon Republic, and the final installment of the trilogy has come out. It's called The Burning God. The Poppy War trilogy was recently nominated for a 2021 Hugo Award for Best Series. Have you read them? Join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, the bulk of my reading is often nonfiction, so when producer Carmen Baskoff suggested we talk to author Rebecca Kwong, I welcome the chance to read a fantasy novel. Rebecca Kwong, welcome to our show. Hi, Lucy. Thanks so much for having me. So I mentioned that uh, you're an incoming student at Yale. You were supposed to be living in New Haven, but uh, the pandemic changed your plans, I assume. Right. I had an apartment already to go to. I was so excited to get it to New Haven. Um, but then the whole world changed. So we're stuck in Florida for another year. <laughs> Not a bad place to be, uh, especially with the winter months approaching. But I wanted to find out, uh, we often ask authors when they were growing up, uh, what books they read or what they were drawn to. Were you drawn to fantasy novels as a child, fantasy stories? Oh, yeah, I read everything I could get my hands on. And so it's funny because my parents tried to do this thing, which ended up backfiring, which was to ban me from reading any sci-fi or fantasy because they thought that all I should be reading was science textbooks, um, which meant that I really relished every chance I got to just sit in the school library. And I used to think it was like a real treat to beg my parents to take me to the public library, uh, which I think now is like any parent's dream. Um, I used to bring home... Um, new fantasy releases that I knew my mom wasn't going to approve of and bury it in the bottom of my backpack, like wrapped up in my sweater so she wouldn't notice, and then read them at like 2 a.m. in the morning, hidden inside closet so that she'd never find out. Um, so I think I've always associated it with a guilty pleasure. And haha, now mom can't complain because I make my living <laughs> off of writing fantasy. And I'm sure they're very proud of you, Rebecca. So We've come around us. to the humanities. <laughs> Were there a particular authors uh, that you want to mention that you really loved? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, I loved Harry Potter. I loved Lord of the Rings. I loved the mm. Bobby Pendragon series and Redwall. Um, I, so the books that had the largest influence on me when I was in elementary middle school um, was the Ender's Game books, like so Ender's Game and its sequels by Orson Scott Card, um, which I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it involves very young kids at battle school saving the planet. And at the time, I just thought it was the most mind blowing thing because like here were kids my age and they were in charge of global responsibilities. They were leading entire armies and the adults around them were taking them seriously and listening to them. And I was like, yes, yes, this is how the social order ought to be. Um, so I reread that so many times I could I could still quote like lines of dialogue between the characters. And I think it really shows in my storytelling bones. Like when I write dialogue today, I still use the kind of quippy irreverent um, back and forth between characters who are really too young for the responsibilities that they've been given. Um, I mean, it's also it's difficult to be an Orson Scott fan, uh, Orson Scott card fan now, because as I got older, um, it became very evident that he was quite homophobic and had made a number of homophobic remarks. And, you know, I'm a queer writer, so I don't really think that he would approve of who I am. But um, I think we all have a difficult relationship with the works that we loved when we were growing up and, and mm. being morally disappointed by the writers. Mm. So let's fast forward to you're 19 and you're in college, but you start writing The Poppy War. Again, this is the first book in the trilogy. How did you find the time uh, to write uh, this story? And it's one thing to be a fan, but to actually attempt to write uh, a fantasy. Tell us about the process. Yeah, so that's another funny story because I really wasn't intending to write a fantasy novel either. So what happened was between my sophomore and junior years of college, I was starting to get disillusioned with my degree program. Um, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my college education. I just knew that I was not very good at economics and didn't want to do it anymore. So I had the opportunity to take a gap year and teach debate to uh, high school students in China, in Beijing. So um, I thought, why not? Um, I'm young, I don't need to finish college immediately. So I moved to another country, um, was in China for, who was living in China for the first time since we immigrated when I was really little, um, was, was learning Chinese, was speaking to my grandparents for the first time and learning a lot um, about my family history and the things that they'd gone through. Um, so the other thing that happened during this gap year was for the first time in my life that I could remember, I did not have homework when I came home after school, like between the hours of five to midnight, I was just totally free. And this was very novel and terrifying to me. So, um, so I partied for a little bit and then I thought, well, it would be really great to spend this year um, doing some kind of project, doing anything that I've never had the time to do before. Um, and so initially I thought, okay, well, I'm going to learn to code because that seems like a very marketable skill. Um, signed up for Code Academy, took some classes on Python, and then quickly discovered I'm very bad at coding and coding is <laughs> really difficult. Um, but while I was on Code Academy, I saw this ad for a program called, called Scrivener, which is a word processing app. Um, that's like the way I describe it to people now is 
If Microsoft Word allows you to see in two dimensions, then Scrivener allows you to see a manuscript in three dimensions. It just has all this functionality that makes writing novels or any sort of long manuscript project much, much easier and more manageable. Um, so I thought, oh, let's get Scrivener. And then, oh, I know, let's write a novel, uh, which was which was ridiculous because I'd never taken a creative writing class and I never like finished a short story in my life. So I don't know why I got it into my head that I could write a novel um, without knowing how to write a novel. Uh, but again, it's nice to be a teenager and have endless free time and um, no conception of how difficult things actually are. So um, so it was really like, I, I learned as I went. I set a daily word count for myself. I thought I'll write a thousand, two thousand words every day and at the end of three months I'll have a novel and magically I stuck to it. Um, the other thing that helped was I'd really wanted to do something with the stories that my grandparents were telling me because these are really wild stories about some of the most turbulent periods in Chinese history and I wanted to chronicle them somehow. So a fantasy novel seemed like an organic way to do that while um, being fun for me and synthesizing my own interests and hobbies as well. Um, and then the novel actually started taking shape and I thought, oh, this could be something that I do professionally maybe. So I started buying a lot of eBooks on craft and writing and, and structure and prose, et cetera. Um, learned all of that while I was finishing the draft and then started Googling, how do you find a literary agent? How do you get published, et cetera. Um, and then at the end of that, six, eight month whirlwind um, adventure, I had a book deal. Wow. It's quite a story. And what a debut novel, The Poppy War. With us is author Rebecca Kwong, uh, who is the author of The Poppy War Trilogy. The final book of the trilogy, The Burning God, comes out today. Kwong's uh, joining us on Zoom, and she's an incoming PhD student at Yale uh, next fall. So you talked about your time that you spent with your grandparents. And uh, for people who have read The Poppy War Trilogy, uh, you draw a lot on uh, what happened in history especially between China and Japan. Can you talk about some of the stories that your grandparents shared? Yeah, um, being in China was really a homecoming for me because it was my first chance to reconnect with with a culture that I'd kind of grown up with in the U.S., but it's not quite the same, and a language that I only still sort of understood. Um, and so it was really wonderful being able to practice those language skills and learning about my family history with grandparents that I'd only seen um, over, or I guess we didn't have FaceTime back then, that I'd only talked to over the phone um, since I could remember. And so my grandfather served as a soldier um, during the Second Sino-Japanese War, and he told me stories of these crazy adventures. I remember one was he and his friends needed to get from one city to another, but it was too far to walk and they didn't have a car. So they they jumped on the back of a pass, like a truck passing by and just really hoped that the truck driver wasn't going to notice them. And then they jumped off when they got to their access point. And um, <laughs> it seems very dangerous, but they seem to have gotten through okay. Um, and then there are a lot of stories of suffering and resilience and fortitude. And I'm thinking of my grandparents on my father's side who are from Hunan. And I later went there in April after I'd finished writing the book. Um, and I went to my dad's, the house that my dad grew up in, uh, which is this basically a mud wall, like mud brick shack, um, where you can still see the bullet holes left by Japanese soldiers 
um, during their brief occupation. There are also a lot of really painful stories about um, just famine and uh, suffering during the Cultural Revolution, during the Great Leap Forward, etc. Um, so my dad, who was dealing with famine when he was very young, uh, he won't eat yams now because uh, yams were all they had uh, when he was growing up. Um, and it was their subsistence food when all the other crops were failing. And um, so we call it yam privilege now. Like mm -hmm. the fact that I like yams means that, you know, I never went through a period where yams were literally all I could eat, um, but my dad won't touch them. So those mm -hmm. are just some of the things that left such a lasting imprint on me that I thought I really have to to chronicle this somehow. Mm. And the themes of trauma and violence uh, are throughout uh, your trilogy, again, the Poppy War trilogy. Can you take uh, listeners into the fantasy world of Nikon and, and talk about this place that you created where magic and shamans exist, Rebecca? Yeah. Um, so the Poppy War is interesting in that it engages with 20th century Chinese history. So. Um, it deals a lot with the political movements. It deals with the upsurge of the communist movement after um, the Second Sino-Japanese War, the Chinese Civil War, um, the communists versus the nationalists, etc. But it takes all of those struggles and transposes them to a world that's more similar to 12th or 13th century Song Dynasty China. And the reason for that aesthetic change um, that I decided on back when I started drafting was actually really quite basic. I just thought, well, I want to write about warfare, but writing about modern warfare seems incredibly difficult because I don't know that much about tanks and I don't know that much about machine guns and a rapid troop movement. And, and that just seems too hard. I think it'll be easier to write a fantasy novel because I'm very familiar with fantasy novels and uh, to, to conceive of battles and battle strategies that use swords and spears and arrows instead. Um, but spoiler alert, it's actually not that much easier. It's actually much harder to <laughs> plan a military campaign when you have limited communications, limited technology uh, mechanisms, and like coordination is just so much more difficult across a broad scale. Um, but I won't bore you with the specifics, but that, that was the reason why I, I decided to go with um, an older setting initially. Um, and, and another reason was just because I'd grown up watching Chinese wuxia martial arts fantasies, um, you know, kung fu movies. I'd grown up reading Japanese manga like Naruto and Bleach. So all of those fantastic speculative elements um, were brewing inside me. So um, that, that was the aesthetic that I brought to what really should have been quite a modern 20th century story. Mm. Then the magic system um, comes in from the importance of opium and poppies mm. in Chinese history. So obviously the first opium war and the second opium war in the 19th century uh, were the, the historical pivot points that really led to what is called the century of humiliation in China. It's a period of deep national shame in Chinese national consciousness because it's seen as the era where uh, European powers basically like ran roughshod over China, uh, right? Like signed unequal trade deals, um, uh, took territory such as Hong Kong and Taiwan for themselves. And uh, so it's seen as this period of deep humiliation and shame and weakness. 
Um, and it's still referred to as the center of humiliation in Chinese propaganda and Chinese national narrative today. Um, so I was interested in the question of what if you took opium, which is the source of all this weakness and shame and turned it into a potential source of power as well, which is where the idea comes from of using psychedelics and hallucinogens and other mind altering drugs to indeed access the gods. Um, and this idea is not new, right? It's a religious practice that has been around for centuries that is still in use in cultures all across the world. So I drew a lot of inspiration off of shamanism, indigenous shamanism in China um, and Taoist mythology and uh, early shamanic practices. Um, and yeah, came up with, I think what got me the book deal was the line that TLDR, drop acid and uh, breathe fire. Mm. Well, tell us more about Rin, because that's what really drew me in is, is her story and her journey. So Rin is an exploration of how uh, Mao Zedong happens. Um, and what I mean by that is when I was doing a deep dive into modern Chinese history and trying to understand the context around the stories that I'd heard from my parents and grandparents, uh, what the question that I kept coming back to was, how does somebody become Mao Zedong? How does someone go from basically like an ignorant peasant nobody to a megalomaniac dictator responsible for the death of millions? And you could say that he was just a sociopath and maybe he was, but I think that's quite a boring answer because it doesn't really explain, well, A, why people followed him or B, why he made the decisions that he did if really his goal was just to inflict as much harm as possible, if truly he didn't care about the Chinese people. And you can say a lot about Mao, but I'm not sure that you could truthfully argue that he really just wanted to inflict harm because if you look at all his rhetoric like the man did think that he was doing the right thing he just was so misguided on how to fight his battle so i wanted to write an epic tragedy that's a villain origin story to describe how someone who cares deeply for friends for their family for the country can can grow so warped and twisted in their logic that they make decisions um, that cause the death of hundreds of thousands of people. Um, so that's what Rin's trajectory over the trilogy is. It's a corruption story mm -hmm. and a villain origin story. Um, but but Rin also has important differences from Mao, right? So she, she like Mao, she's from the South. She's a peasant. Nobody takes her seriously. Um, she faces classism and aristocratic discrimination, but she's also a woman. And she deals with a number of episodes throughout the trilogy that we can talk about in a bit, mm -hmm. um, based on the fact that she's a woman that are unique challenges that Mao never had to deal with. And here I am exploring the, the failed promises that the communist movement made to women in the 20th century, because initially the communists uh, presented themselves as liberators for all kinds of marginalized groups. And they told women, we will liberate you from your feudal um, household structures. You don't have to be wives. You don't have to work for your husband. You don't have to be oppressed in the households if you join the communists where we're all equal. But that's not how things ended up, right? It's Women were not, in fact, liberated from the household. They were expected to be communist cadres and do all the work of as 
the men uh, that the men did, but they were also expected to still do the household work. Um, so, so adding the gendered element to to Rin's character is is another aspect that sets her off from Mao. Could you read a, a part of the Poppy War for us, uh, Rebecca? Sure. So this is a scene from the very first chapter of the book. The examination room fit a hundred students. The desks were arranged in neat rows of 10. On each desk sat a heavy exam booklet, an inkwell, and a writing brush. Most of the other provinces of Nikon had to section off entire town halls to accommodate the thousands of students who attempted the exam each year. <clears throat> but Tikani Township in Wooster Province was a village of farmers and peasants. Tikani's families needed hands to work the fields more than they needed university-educated brats. Tikani only ever used the one classroom. Rin filed into the room along with the other students and took her assigned seat. She wondered how the examinees looked from above. Neat scores of black hair, uniform blue smocks, and brown wooden tables. She imagined them multiplied across identical classrooms throughout the country right now, all watching the water clock with nervous anticipation. Rin's teeth chattered madly in a staccato that she thought everyone could surely hear, and it wasn't just from the cold. She clamped her jaw shut, but the shuddering just spread down her limbs to her hands and knees. The writing brush shook in her grasp, dribbling black droplets across the table. She tightened her grip and wrote her full name across the booklet's cover page. Fang Runin. She wasn't the only one who was nervous. Already, there were sounds of retching over the bucket in the back of the room. She squeezed her wrist, fingers closing over pale burn scars, and inhaled. Focus. In the corner, a water clock rang softly. Begin, said the examiner. A hundred test booklets were opened with a flapping noise, like a flock of sparrows taking off at once. You just heard Rebecca Kwong, again, author of the Poppy War trilogy. She writes as R.F. Kwong, the final book of the trilogy, The Burning God, comes out today. You can read an excerpt of that novel at, uh, at wmpr.org slash where we live. Rebecca and I will continue talking after the break, and you can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today is author Rebecca Kwong, who has written the Poppy War trilogy. Two of the novels are on Time Magazine's 100 Best Fantasy Books. The authors who came up with this list include N.K. Jemisin, Neil Gaiman, and George R.R. Martin. Rebecca, how did you feel when you made this list? My understanding is the list goes back 100 uh, books in chronological order beginning in the 9th century, and two of your books are on it. Oh, it was insane. It really <laughs> made my month. Um, I had a suspicion that we could uh, expect something from time because a couple days before that list came out, my publicist asked me to confirm for Time Magazine that I was 24 years old. And I was like, that's weird, but yeah, I'm 24. Um, but I didn't know that it was going to be that list. 
Um, but I think the, the coolest thing about that list in particular it, is that it's one of the first lists that's made a concerted effort to include people of color and women in the, the committee that, that chooses the books. Um, and that's important because a, a lot of the standard um, lists of like the fantasy, science fiction, canon, et cetera, just repeat the same uh, white male names over and over again. So you see a lot of George R. R. Martin, right? You see a lot of J.R. Tolkien and uh, Brandon Sanderson, et cetera. And, and those works are all great, but the fantasy genre has really moved on um, from that very limited palette. And it was just nice to see a list that celebrated the diversity and innovation and novelty of where the genre is going now. When we think uh, about some uh, popular fantasy series, uh, Rebecca, there's usually a, a one uh, bad person or a, a, an enemy that must be defeated, whether it's Sauron or Voldemort. Can you talk more about throughout your trilogy, uh, Rin uh, discovering a range of characters that are exploiting the Nakara people, but also the the themes and the journey that she takes as she learns about her power? So I think stories about simple black and white, good and evil, have <clears throat> have been uh, unpopular for a while because I think especially in our current political movement and in the crises that we're currently living through, there's more of a recognition that that evil is not this horrible other thing that we'd always recognize whenever we saw it, right? But rather that we're all capable of evil and that political movements are really messy and there are all kinds of interests, intersecting interests involved. Um, and we're all a bit more complicit than we think we'd like to be. So the poppy war uh, is often called grimdark, um, which is a genre appellation that I, I think I'm fine with. And um, one of the things that grimdark fantasy tries a lot to do is explore the shades of gray and in individual morality and to question the assumptions that we have about heroes or who's right on, on the side of whatever war the book is about. Um, the, the other ethical sensibility that I'm bringing to this trilogy and, and how I deal with um, the protagonist, antagonist, heroes, villains, etc., is is classes that I've taken in modern Chinese history where the, the first lesson that you learn is that history is incredibly messy and war is incredibly messy. And anytime you see a narrative that is, we were the victims, they were the oppressors, we were the good guys, they were the bad guys, we did nothing wrong, um, they committed all the war crimes. That's always a self-serving nationalist story, right? Because that's never true. Um, take for example, the Nanjing Massacre, which the Poppy War deals a lot with. So in December of 1937, Japanese troops um, invaded the city of Nanjing and over the next six weeks proceeded to kill, mutilate, torture civilians on, on an absolutely atrocious scale. And these atrocities have been well documented. And when I was writing the Poppy War, it seemed like a very easy story to to tell about how this awful thing had happened to the innocent Chinese civilians. Um, but then when you look at the way the Nanjing massacre has been used 
uh, by self-serving nationalist propaganda over time, right? The way that the Chinese Communist Party talks about the Nanjing massacre, it's not used to demand reparations or respect or commemoration for the victims. It's used to stoke anti-Japanese sentiment. It's used to distract away from problems at home and, and inspire this, this patriotic rallying around the flag um, based on the hurts of World War II against a modern day Japanese regime uh, that has no relation to the Imperial Japan uh, that committed those atrocities. So history's messy. Uh, there are always collaborators. There are always traitors. There are always uh, different factions and, and interests involved. And I think it's good that we're seeing a lot more fantasy novels now that deal with those complexities and nuances. Um, Cause the, like, you know, we, we'd like to think that we are the resistance, but oftentimes in the United States, we are the, the evil empire. Mm. When you mentioned uh, the Nanjing massacre, uh, when I was reading the Poppy War, it was very difficult uh, to read uh, that chapter uh, in the book uh, focusing on the city of uh, Golanese, uh, which was occupied by the Muganese uh, army. So can you talk through with us uh, in your research, uh, writing that scene and and having to come to grips with uh, these horrible things that happened to so many? It was incredibly difficult. And I remember that writing the rest of the book felt very smooth and easy and fun. Like I would fly through revisions for an entire chapter in a single day. But then when I got to chapter 21, which is the chapter in which all of the atrocities from the Nanjing massacre are recounted to somebody who wasn't there, um, I found that I could only get through a couple sentences at a time. I would always have to stand up and walk around outside. Um, and even so, I spent a lot of the week that I spent writing that chapter crying or just staring at the wall or just in a very bad mental place um, because Writing that scene was the first time that I'd really thought deeply about the Nanjing massacre. And it was the, the month before that was the first time that I'd even found out that it happened, right? Because they don't really teach about the Pacific theater mm -hmm. in World War II in American high schools. And and even as a college student, I, I hadn't encountered what actually happened in China during the Second Sino-Japanese War. And it wasn't until I started digging and I read one book in particular, which is Iris Chang's um, The Nanjing Massacre, uh, which was, uh, I think, published in 1997 and was the first book that really brought the massacre to Western attention, which is crazy because the massacre happened in, in 1937 and the West wasn't really talking about it or thinking about it until 60 years later. Um, and I thought that was horrible. I thought this was a hidden history that needed to be talked about. Um, so so one thing that I did, uh, which stuns a lot of people, is that even though the rest of the novel is a fantasy novel, none of the scenes in the Nanjing Massacre chapter are made up. So everything you read about, every grotesque torture, every mutilation, every murder is something that's directly lifted off the pages of history, which is what makes it even more frightening. Um, and at the time, I was really fueled by this, this refusal to look away. I thought that we'd spent so long sweeping this history under the rug. And it was really important just to uh, 
take an unflinching look at what had happened because I don't think that you can move on and heal properly without a uh, proper, complete uh, recognition of what actually indeed happened. Because like, like the Holocaust, right, there are a lot of denialists of the Nanjing massacre. There's a lot of debate over whether it was really Japanese soldiers or Chinese soldiers who carried out the massacre. There's debate over, you know, exactly how many people died or if the victims are making things up, etc. And and a lot of this is politically biased, and I think it's important to recognize that it did happen, and, and people died, and people suffered, and there are survivors, and it was an awful thing that needs to go cleanly into the historical record. Mm -hmm. When we talk about trauma, uh, Rin, uh, the female protagonist, experiences extreme trauma. But um, going back to this particular chapter in the book, I think about the character Venka and how uh, she uh, experiences extreme violence. But uh, throughout the trilogy, um, she's someone that is resilient and she finds a way uh, to to move past this, even though it's still a big part of her. Can you talk about uh, why you decided to, to have a character like Venka in this trilogy? So a big frustration I have with grimdark fantasy novels that, that feature seems like... Um, you know, ethnic cleansing or wartime rape or sexual violence, etc., is that it's almost always used as shock value to show the protagonist and uh, by extension the reader how awful the other side is. So it's often, right, like the protagonist is going through a village and, and the villagers are like, these soldiers did such terrible things to our women. Um, and then the protagonist moves on with a new sense of justice and desire for vengeance against the bad guys. Um, but the women almost never get a voice, right? They're almost always just the victims. Things are inflicted upon them, but they have no agency. They don't get to seek retribution. We don't get to see their healing process. We don't see what their life looks like after what happened to them. Um, so I thought it was important to demonstrate through Venka's character the way that one person might respond to something as traumatic as the rape of Nanjing and to move on and how her outlook might change and how her attitude towards other people might change. And she's a really brittle, violent, bitter person, right? Like she doesn't magically get better mm -hmm. and the people around her treat her like she's fundamentally broken or soiled because of what happened that, that she'll never be any more than what happened to her, which is also something that she rails against. So it's she's she's dealing with all of these complex emotions of wanting to move on, but also not being able to forget and having that color every interaction that she has um, with everybody else. Um, there are scenes in The Burning God where she encounters um, victims of a similar atrocity mm -hmm. and she just has no sympathy towards them. Um, these women are traumatized, they're terrified, they're, they're refusing to eat, um, they're very scared and, and Venka just starts yelling at them. She says, like, you know, like you survived, you're lucky. Like, how could you be refusing to eat? Like, you're weak um, and, and she has to be uh, she has to be argued down um, <laughs> from re-traumatizing these girls. Um, and what I'm trying to do there is show that there's no correct way or no single way to be a survivor. Uh, her, her reaction is 
perfectly reasonable given what she's going through. Her attitude is you have to be really strong to get over it. Um, you, you have to have the mental fortitude if you want to survive. And, and that translates into her being very uh, unsympathetic in the moment. Um, but I think it's important that we don't create this, this moral, um, this like the the golden example of what a survivor is supposed to look like and how they're supposed to act and and relate to what happened to them because there are there are infinite ways of grappling with trauma you're hearing rebecca kwong here on where we live uh, she's written the poppy war uh, the dragon republic and today the burning god comes out uh, a trilogy uh, that uh, she bases on uh, history and you made the great point rebecca that there's a lot of history that we don't learn so when you think about the people that have embraced this trilogy uh, that are reading these books and you've heard from them over the last few years when you were writing it who were you writing it for so I was writing it for my family and I, it was funny because when I was drafting the Poppy War, um, the, so I never thought that I'd be sharing all of my writing with my dad, but I ended up sending him one chapter at a time as I went on and it became this really good feedback mechanism where his enthusiasm for every subsequent chapter made me want to write an even better, more exciting chapter to send him the next week. and. Um, so I think it had the effect that like Charles Dickens writing in periodicals did where if, if you're only publishing a little bit at a time, then you have an incentive to make things end on cliffhangers and be really fast paced and exciting um, because you, you can't have an off chapter because then the reader is going to lose patience. Um, so that was a really wonderful way of reconnecting with my dad and talking about his history. And um, so like one thing that I didn't know about my dad was that he, he loves fantasy novels and he loves literature and he ended up getting his PhD in physics because that's what he thought he had to do but he always really wished that he'd been able to go uh, into literature or history instead um, so he was actually really happy that's that that was what I pivoted towards um, so it it made me really glad that he and my mom loved the book so much and my grandparents can't read English and the books haven't been translated into Chinese, but they tell them everything that happens in the books and it makes my grandparents really happy too. But yeah, it's, it's a family project and it's dedicated to them. Mm. Have they apologized for locking up those sci-fi fantasy books from you and as a child, Rebecca? <laughs> So my mom never has, and she is now congratulating herself for this move because she thinks that if she hadn't done that, then I wouldn't have loved fantasy books as much, and I never would have become a fantasy writer. So what can you do with moms? <laughs> I wanted to get back to, to Rin because uh, she's someone, again, uh, who ends up committing uh, some war crimes. I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't uh, read the trilogy yet. But something that I, I thought was really interesting is in the book, uh, through, even throughout the, the trilogy, she still at some point struggles with imposter syndrome. Can you talk about uh, why you wrote that into the story? Well, <laughs> I just I think that as a young woman of color in any field, imposter syndrome is something that I deal with on a daily basis. Like even after having three books out, sometimes I'm in publishing spaces and I think, oh, I, I don't really know how to write a book. I don't know what I'm doing here. I am scamming everybody when I say I know anything about storytelling. And it's the same for me in, in academia. I often convince myself that I can't even speak the research languages that I work in. Um, 
But Rin's case is unique because she's in a context where her imposter syndrome is is not just something that she's coming up with in her head, right? Like it's constantly reinforced by the factors around her, especially when she tests into um, Synagard, which is the the best military academy in in the nation. And it's incredibly difficult to pass the exam um, to get into, especially as a scholarship student. The moment she gets there, right, she's told that she doesn't belong because she didn't grow up in an aristocratic household. She didn't grow up taking martial arts lessons. She doesn't have the right kind of cultural education. She doesn't know how to move in those spaces. Uh, She doesn't have the same kind of connections as her upper class, paler northerner uh, uh, classmates. And there I was portraying an exaggerated account of how it felt for me um, to attend a private school um, for the last three years of my K through 12 education after having been um, in public school for most of my life. I I transferred to the Green Hill School for debate uh, to to compete on their debate team. And it was it was such a culture shock for me um, because suddenly all of my classmates were incredibly wealthy. During spring break, they were getting on jets to uh, private jets to Cabo um, to party, and you know I still wasn't allowed to go to sleepovers. Um, so that that feeling of being an outsider, of feeling like she's not good enough and that she doesn't belong despite her achievements, is something that I was drawing from personal experience. Mm. You're hearing author Rebecca Kwong, who's written the Poppy Lord trilogy. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Right after a short break, we'll continue our conversation and we'll find out what Rebecca is working on next. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. And today my guest on Zoom, Rebecca Kwong, who writes as R.F. Kwong, the author of the Poppy Ward Trilogy. Kwong will be doing her PhD at Yale in East Asian Languages and Literature next year. You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. As a writer, Rebecca, what's it been like in this pandemic? So it's been good and bad. The good thing is that since I can't go to bars or movie theaters or to restaurants, um, I'm basically forced to sit at home and have uninterrupted focus to spend on on my manuscript. So it's been good for productivity. Um, On the other hand, so much of writing is human experiences and emotions and the feelings you get from interactions with other people and seeing new things and experiencing new things, right? Like I've always written based on my surroundings and my approximate inspirations. And it's really hard to recreate that in in the sterile environment of lockdown. I find myself having to reach really far back from memories to remind myself what it was like to actually go to the pub and meet friends and and be in social settings. Um, So I think my writing is suffering for that reason. so, so that's the flip side of having a lot more time to write. Mm. 
Are you sad that the Poppy War trilogy is over or uh, happy to be on uh, to the next uh, project? And we want to know more about that, Rebecca. Oh, I just feel liberated. <laughs> so I've been working on the Poppy War trilogy since 2015, and that's five years of my life, which is a really long time to be working on anything. And especially by the third book, even though I was still having a ton of fun and I'd grown to know the characters so well that it was incredibly easy to write them. And and even though it it felt really satisfying to tie together this, this immense project, um, I also felt very constrained by the creative decisions that I'd made back when I was a teenager, um, right? Like there were plot lines that I wasn't sure what to do with anymore. There are world building elements that were not as exciting to me. And um, I, when you're doing a trilogy, you have to deliver on all of the promises that you made in the first book. Um, and I did that, but it just feels really, really good now to start over with a blank slate and create new promises to the reader to do a different form of world building, to get away from the world of Nikon and mm -hmm. to explore the world of an alternative 1830s Oxford, uh, which is where the book that I'm working on now is set. I should mention to our listeners that you've earned master's degrees in Chinese studies at both Cambridge and Oxford. So tell us a little bit more about uh, what you're going to be writing about related to Oxford. So I was able to spend two years in the UK on a Marshall scholarship. Um, and uh, I had the privilege of exploring two of the most romantic places, I think, in any um, Anglophile's imagination. Um, but but while I was there, I grew really disillusioned with um, the, the romance of Cambridge and Oxford. Uh, it was very apparent that these universities have not really dealt with their colonialist roots, that there's still severe racism and classism and sexism at these schools. Um, and again, because I always write based on my current experiences, I thought that would be an interesting, interesting thing to explore in the next project. Uh, so the next project, which I'm calling a dark academia novel, is in a way a response to novels like The Secret History, which I love and which I adore, um, but which is about a handful of really privileged, really self-centered, myopic, um, white kids at a liberal arts school. And it, it's intentionally so. I think Donna Tart was doing that on purpose. Um, but it's so frustrating. And that's part of what makes the book good, uh, that they're so siloed that they can't see the larger problems between um, in, in their status at the university and that university status in the larger world. Uh, and I think it's important to, to address the kind of violent knowledge production that goes on at these schools, the way that they continuously uh, perpetuate ideologies and theories that justify imperialism, colonialism, slavery, racism, et cetera, the way they benefit off of that through alumni donations and the kind of scholars that come up within those networks um, and and like that's that's the real darkness of academia to me, and that's not often talked about in in campus novels because in a lot of dark academia books, the the monster and the darkness is something external. It's something that happens to the school. But I want to ask, what happens if the evil is entrenched in the roots of the university? What do you do with that? What mm. does it take to to radically alter to the university to to an ethical standpoint? 
Well, I can't wait to read that, uh, Rebecca Kwong, again, here on Where We Live. Uh, we've just really enjoyed talking with you and learning about uh, not only your background, but your journey as a writer. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Again, Rebecca Kwong, who writes as R.F. Kwong. She's written The Poppy War, The Dragon Republic, and uh, today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Thanks for turning me on to this trilogy, Carmen. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. You can learn more about the show. You can listen to Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. <laughs>